exhibitors are going to be happy to have these movies but we have to find a way for these movies to overcome that limitation they've had at the box office it didn't work in 2023 wish being the latest example This is the Box Office Podcast. I'm Daniel Luria, the editorial director of Box Office Pro, the pulse of theatrical exhibition. Here this week with my colleagues, Rebecca Pauly, deputy editor of Box Office Pro, and Chad Kennerk, analyst at Box Office Pro. In this week's episode, we are going to be doing a complete Monday morning quarterback. I know it's Thursday, but we'll do a Monday morning quarterback of what went right and what went wrong over the Thanksgiving box office holiday weekend. And we will be previewing all the movies coming out next weekend, in the coming days. So we get to have a good feeling on what December 2023 is going to be looking like. But let's start, guys, with a question I usually ask when I'm hosting intro duties here. I haven't done it for a while. I've been out on, on paternity leave for a bit. Thanksgiving holiday. There's usually the Thanksgiving movie people go out to see. Rebecca, what did you see? I stayed home on this one because I have plans over the next week or week and a half to see, I think, four movies. Yeah. So it's a between, lot of movies. Yeah. So I'm, I'm I'm budgeting myself out uh, before then because I'm not skipping popcorn for any of them. But no, yeah, I'm excited. I'm checking out uh, Godzilla minus one tomorrow, which is a film that's that's we'll be talking about later in the episode because it's being uh, released by Toho International this weekend. How about you, Chad? What did you get to see over Thanksgiving weekend? I saw a press screening the week before of Wish, and then over the Thanksgiving weekend, I got to see Napoleon on IMAX, so shout out to Metro Lux Theaters on that one. How'd it sound? Because at CinemaCon, the sound on it was just amazing. Yeah, yeah, I think it's the way to see it. If you're going to watch a big historical epic, watch it in premium formats. And Chad, you're up in Colorado. What's that location of uh, Metro Theaters that you usually go to? Yeah, it's the Metrolux 12 Plus IMAX at Centera. Nice, nice. I'm a big fan of Colorado. The state and the college football team, as some of our listeners may know, I am an alumnus of the University of Colorado at Boulder. And when I started paternity leave, the football team was 3-0, and the talk of the nation. I am now coming back from paternity leave after a 4-7 and season. It was a long, long paternity leave in that regard. <laughs> so I had to wash away my sorrows uh, catching up on movies. I got to see uh, Fallen Leaves, the new film from uh, Finnish director Aki Karusmaki. Am I saying his name correctly? I have no I idea. I can't, I'm not going to yeah, even try to answer that. that one. But I've heard really good things. And I, I've seen and I like what that 87-minute runtime, that's always uh, something that'll help to draw me in. I got to tell you guys, it's one of the best of the year. I really, really enjoyed this movie right now in a limited release, a specialty title. It'll be expanding over the coming weeks into the holiday period. But let's talk about that exactly. What's in theaters? What's working? What isn't? Uh, Okay, the number one movie here was The Hunger Games, Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes. We've already heard from the director in that interview that Chad Kenrick had not too long ago. We won't get too much into the numbers here on Hunger Games, Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes, a movie that we all were a little bit nervous on how it would perform. Decent opening weekend, not a Hunger Games opening weekend, but it wasn't ever supposed to be. Keeps the number one spot for second consecutive weekend. Let's go down the list here. Napoleon, in my opinion, a somewhat surprising second place finish. 
given what was out there in the marketplace? Absolutely, 110%. I think everyone was uh, was really surprised to see uh, the one, two of uh, Hunger Games and Napoleon. Hunger Games, that mentioned, like you mentioned, Chad, holding really well, only a 35% drop in its second week, far better than what we normally saw from the Hunger Games franchise. Napoleon from Apple being released domestically by Sony, 20.4 million, which is not... I mean, this is like Killers of the Flower Moon by Scorsese in the effect that it's a huge, big budget film uh, that was never... Financed by Apple that's financed just by burning Apple money on prestige movies. Was never going to make fine, a lot right? of money in cinemas, was never supposed to. So I think maybe this coming in at number two definitely wasn't, uh, wasn't on anybody's radar. And listen, it performed well enough to end up with that number two spot open on opening weekend. And of course, that 20.4 is for the regular Friday through Sunday weekend. The five-day holiday frame puts it at 32.5 million. Internationally, the five-day frame for Napoleon is 46.3 million, with top markets being the United Kingdom with 6.6 million. France, where it's gotten, to say harsh reviews would be putting it kindly. The reviews have not been very friendly but hey, for Napoleon over it, at France. It got number one at the box office there, so, you know. It did, with 5.6 million, <laughs> followed by Germany with 3.4 million, and then Spain with 3.3 million in opening weekend. We went over this not too long ago here on the podcast. I liked it, Chad. It's the sort of great man movie where the great man actually seems to be a bit of a buffoon, a completely <laughs> dislikable guy, and it's not shy about making him dislikable. It's a movie that doesn't take itself too seriously, not too dissimilar from Ridley Scott's House of Gucci, a movie that- uh, Didn't take itself seriously at all. At all, to, at to all. its great benefit, benefit. To its great benefit. <laughs> <laughs> and there's some wonderful one-liners here that, that really should be nowhere near a historical epic in the screenplay for Napoleon. There's some- weird kinky moments that I did not expect to see, but they were there. I had a good time with it. Chad, what was the vibe in that auditorium on opening weekend? Yeah, yeah. I had a good time too. I think everyone in my screening did as well. There was an older woman next to me that had a cup of wine. So I was just smelling Ooh, wine during yes. the whole film. So that awesome. really so set the mood. And, and, and like, like Napoleon is like hitting those meals. That's the other thing that you get to see a lot of like dinner and breakfast action in Napoleon. It's great action sequences and great breakfast eating sequences. Yeah. Really, really entertaining in that regard. <laughs> I like that. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a long runtime. How many glass, I mean, at that point, did you just go for the bottle? It's a long movie. It feels like that runtime, yeah, was was tailor-made. It just seems like a perfect uh, Thanksgiving weekend. Everybody's out. Nobody has to worry so much about about the timing of it. I feel like Sony slash Apple really, uh, really called this one very well. And we'll see how that holds in the coming weeks. Unfortunately, number three from Disney is the original animated film, Wish. Opening in third place, it's another post-pandemic year, guys. It's another extremely disappointing opening weekend for a Disney animated title. Listen, it feels like every podcast that we do recently is that Disney isn't firing all cylinders. What's going on mm. over there? What's working? What isn't? So you're tempted we'll to save that for later. You're tempted to say for this one, like, oh, you know, look at it in the context of Disney's overall performance this year. Look at it in the context of the fact that they've really been relying on holds, which on, on balance have been positive for their animation films hitting theaters. You're tempted to kind of like temper it and be like, oh, in that context, we shouldn't do that bad on its first weekend. But if you didn't hit 20 million and you're, uh, oh, man. You, I, you, we really, you can't really, really sugarcoat 
that one it was bad, even if it does hold well, which, you know, I assume you know, you look at the cinema it. scores, it's, it. it's A minus. Right. We saw it with Little Mermaid earlier this year, which is one of the top 10 gro- highest grossing films of the year. If we judged Little Mermaid on opening weekend alone, we would have gotten it wrong. But we also have to say, eef, these numbers are nowhere near what we expect. Even in Canto, which debuted over Thanksgiving weekend, a weekend where traditionally Disney just kills it with animation. I mean, Encanto opened to 27 million. So not good. I mean, I, I'm just wondering what happened here in terms of the specific movie and then just in terms of Disney's general overall strategy. Daniel, I know we spoke a bit about this last week. We've spoken about it before. Disney has just gotten people used to watching their animated films on streaming. It feels like they kind of set things on fire for Disney+. Plus. At this point, how do you turn the ship around? It's hard to assess. It's so hard to assess. And you know what? I think we're going to go on this topic in a lot more detail in our end of the year podcast uh, coming up in, in a couple of weeks. Right now, if we look at these figures here, like you said, under $20 million opening weekend for a new Disney animated film on the centennial anniversary of the studio. Which it feels like they haven't really been doing much for the centennial. I mean, I've seen more from Warner Brothers. It's also their centennial than I have from Disney. And you've you've seen at least something from there. That's a very good point. I, I don't know what to say about this other than I don't think it's the movies exactly. Some of the movies that haven't performed great at the box office have found audiences later on on Disney+. Plus. You mentioned Encanto, that's an example. Some movies have been sacrificial lambs for the growth of the money pit that is Disney+. Plus. And that's what it is. We have to say what it is because that's definitely what investors know what it is right now. It's a money pit where billion dollars go to disappear. It just hasn't worked out. You know, I, I thought Soul was a fantastic movie. I loved watching it on Disney+. Plus. Yeah, uh, did anybody else see it there? I don't know. Did anybody see Strange Worlds in theaters at all? Chad, you had to remind me last that was week a movie. that that movie yeah. existed. <laughs> so I think at the heart of this is the Disney marketing machine isn't on the winning streak that it was for the last 15 years. It's just not. It's not. Whatever is happening on putting these movies out in theaters isn't clicking the way it used to. Now, that doesn't mean that exhibition is moving away from Disney or the Disney's role at the box office isn't what it used to be. You look at the top 10 movies theatrically this year, 2023, Disney has four titles in the top 10. Nobody else has that number of titles said, in I mean, the top 10. 2019, they had eight. So it's not, it's somewhere in between right. the yeah. polls. Of- it's somewhere in between. Now in 2018, we kept on saying this industry has to find a way to live without this dependency on Disney. The MCU is going to stop hitting like it used to. And lo and behold, it stopped hitting like it used to. Exactly. It's not what it used to be, but that doesn't mean it isn't still extremely important. Or let's call it what it is again. Disney right now is still the most important studio in terms of box office potential for movie theaters. It's just the box office isn't as big as it used to be. The ceiling is much lower than it used to be. The floor is still there. You look at those grosses on all the movies they've released. The floor is still there. It's solid. Exhibitors are going to be happy to have these movies. 
but we have to find a way for these movies to overcome that limitation they've had at the box office. It didn't work in 2023, Wish being the latest example of that situation. Yeah, definitely, Daniel. But but as always with this industry, there's more to look at than just the domestic story. Internationally, the international markets have always been a major part of the success of Disney titles, family titles in general. The story internationally from Wish really isn't so good, isn't so bad. Chad, what are we looking at here? Because Disney in the releases we got were very much like, no, 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 it's worse than it looks with regards to the international rollout. Mm. Yeah, 17.3 million for the five day internationally. It opened in 27 markets. But in terms of the significant markets, it only opened in four, Spain, UK, China, and Mexico, with China being the top territory there at 3.5 million and the UK just behind at three. Yeah, 27 markets, not a lot of markets. So that 17.3 million five-day total is not as bad as it looks. There's going to be that staggered release where we're going to see the movie hit different markets, taking advantage of local holidays. Upcoming major release dates include Japan on December 15th, Italy on December 21st, Australia on Boxing Day, South Korea January 3rd, and Brazil on January 4th. Now, I am bracing myself for the next five years of my life (laughs) being mostly watching Disney films with my daughter as she grows up. So I am not running to see a Disney film before I have to. Chad, you did see this one. What did you think? You know, I think it delivers an occasional moment of magic, but it mainly sacrifices story in favor of a Disney 100 marketing campaign. There are so oh, that's many. What it, that's where it was. We were wondering where the marketing campaign it's was. In they this they movie. blew it all in this movie. Okay. Yes. There are so many winks to previous Disney films. They spend most of the time the running time trying to remind you of other films that you probably loved more than this one. That feels almost like it's a movie that's made for the Disney adult demographic than for the actual kid demographic that maybe was not going to get the references to, I don't know, Peter Pan or some of those earlier films. Hey, Disney made that movie earlier this summer. It's called Indiana Jones and the whatever, whatever. I forget the subtitle (laughs) there. But no, Disney's been making a lot of those. Hey, parents, you like this when you were 12. Maybe you'll like this at 42. Turns out their kids don't. Yeah. Okay. Well, we were wondering where that centennial anniversary celebration went. Disney blew it on a movie that nobody saw in its opening weekend. Let's not go too much into detail here. Let's see how this movie holds on in the coming weeks. And just going over the other major holds this weekend, we had in fourth place Trolls Band Together from Universal, which is now up to 64 million nationally and 145 million worldwide. In number five, Eli Roth's Thanksgiving. I was a fan of that fake trailer in the Tarantino Robert Rodriguez Grindhouse double feature from like, what was that, 20 years ago? Maybe no. 15 Could, years ago. I don't like either of Is those it that options. Old? I do not like wow, either of those. So Man, that came out a long time ago. But the Thanksgiving trailer I thought was the funniest fake trailer of the bunch. Of course, I'm extremely partial to the two machete movies that came out of these fake trailers. Rebecca, you're a big horror nerd. What are you hearing about Thanksgiving now that it's had a couple of weeks theatrically? I'm hearing not much, honestly, which is a bad sign. I'm, I'm from my scene of people who I, you know, I'm hearing honestly more about Saltburn than I am about Thanksgiving. I mean, it seems like Thanksgiving is going to be the thing that's going to have a really long life on streaming. It's it's going to pop up. I'm not 
a particularly huge uh, Eli Roth fan myself, so it was never really on my radar to see. I mean, that's a good get for TriStar. I mean, certainly it's had some international success. Daniel, like you mentioned, horror, regardless of whether American Thanksgiving means anything for anybody outside the United States, which of course it doesn't. I hope it means this. I hope people in people other countries from, that are not familiar, this, yeah. they were like, oh, that's what Black Friday is. Wow. Yeah, maybe that happens. And over in sixth place, a movie that we will just mention in passing is The Marvels, which drops out of the top five in the third week, a sign of the MCU's rapidly, rapidly fading relevance Again, we will go into that in detail in our end of the year podcast because I am not going anywhere near that dumpster fire in the coming weeks. On limited release, we're seeing some good small movies getting a little bit of momentum. You just mentioned Emerald Fennel's Saltburn from Amazon MGM going wide last weekend to 1,566 screens. That is up from seven in the prior frame. It broke the top 10 with 1.7 million in the three-day frame and 2.7 million on the five-day. I've got an award screener of this movie sitting on my desk. I would love to see it theatrically. Again, have a child. That's going to be tough. How quickly should I see this? Because I am hearing a lot of buzz around this title, Rebecca. I'm hearing some very divisive buzz, which is always a sign that uh, always that's good. always good. Always um, good. I'm hearing a lot of, you know, it's it's a more style than substance. It's a very, you know, pretty movie with not a lot of depth to it, which honestly I'm fine with. Yeah, I was, uh, I was really, really surprised, honestly, that another Amazon MGM, another kind of streamer theatrical hybrid here, went wide to about 1,500 screens, actually over 1,500 screens, up from seven last week. I'm surprised that they uh, they went so big with it. It seems to have worked out for them. And uh, yeah, I mean, I guess it's the same as what we've been saying throughout this year that, you know, the silver lining of some of these films that were expected to pop not doing so well is that it does give other uh, films in the market a little bit of room to breathe. And The Holdovers, I think we should mention as well. That's one that's in the seventh place. It, uh, it cracked the top 10. That is the title. The Holdover, the Holdovers. The holdovers, right? the yeah. term holdovers <laughs> yes. The Holdover, the Holdovers. Yes. That's also performing well as it begins to expand. That feels like a real, like a man called Otto situation where it's it's stealthy. It's sneaky. Like it's just kind of kept maintaining those holds, kept earning screens that initially came out. With six theaters, I think around the end of October. Unfortunately, I also think it's, uh, I heard it's coming out on, on PVOD soon, which seems like a shame <laughs> considering it still yeah. has that momentum. November 28th. Oh, it's actually, it'll be out on PVOD uh, already by the time this episode comes out, even though it cracked the top 10 at the box office. But oh well, you know, still good news for Focus. I'm happy for them. <laughs> yeah, what do we know? It's just a model that worked for 100 years and we're redefining it. We'll see how that goes. But, you know, good for these movies that are coming out, expanding, finding audiences. Hopefully streaming doesn't derail them too much. And by the way, there's a way to do day and date or to have a simultaneous release work. We're seeing it. Look at Five Nights at Freddy's. Yeah, it is now the biggest Blumhouse title of all time globally in theaters, despite a day and date SVOD release on Peacock. The movie is now at $283 million worldwide. So it's not just that we think that simultaneous release is useless and ridiculous. Maybe I feel 85% that way. But if you do it properly, if you do it the right way with the right audience base on the right title, it can work wonders for both the streaming service and the title. Yeah, there are circumstances when it really works. I mean, in the case of Five Nights at Freddy's, I think it's the extremely specific circumstance of 
horror movie coming out from Universal in October. They've had good luck with that in the past, obviously, with uh, some of the films in the Halloween trilogy reboot. Universal having a having a really, really good year after this weekend, after Wish kind of uh, flopping at the box office. They're pretty much neck and neck, Disney and Universal, for being the highest grossing studio of the year. Disney sitting at about $1.84 billion, Universal, and of course, all their specialty divisions as well, at $1.829 billion. Universal has a big family film coming out over the Christmas corridor, that being Migration. And on the Disney side, there are a couple of buzzed about award contenders, you know, specialty films like Poor Things and, and All of the Strangers. So I, I, that's going to be, that's what I'm, I'm paying attention to as we move towards Christmas to see. We've had a lot of ties at the box office over these past few months, at least looking at the, the estimates. And it's looking like we're going to come close to having a big one here in terms of the studios. Yeah, it would be, I think, an upset if Universal is able to take that number one spot from Disney at the domestic box office. For 2023 theatrical grosses, we will find that out in the coming weeks. But before we go too far into the schedule, uh, we do have new movies opening next weekend in the coming days. Let's start with the one that I really would have loved to see in theaters if I could find a babysitter to take care of a five-month-old. I can't. Silent Night from Lionsgate. It is the latest American film from director John Woo. We're expecting a four to nine million dollar opening weekend for that title and for it to leg out anywhere between six and 21 million. A modest expectation, but for those of us that love 90s Hong Kong action cinema, we'll always say yes to John Woo. Yeah. And like, this isn't a film that that really needs to make a ton of money. It feels very much in the realm of a Violet Nights from, from last year or Thanksgiving from this year and the melding of, uh, of a holiday hook and then kind of the, the genre component added on. I mean, I, I know the kind of one of the hooks for this one is that the lead character doesn't talk at all throughout the film, which I'm excited. Like, I don't go to see a John Rue film for talking. Wonderful. So. No one. No one does. I can only imagine the biggest expense in production for Silent Night must have been the dove trainers getting all those doves to do all those shots probably isn't no, going to come it's, easily. No, it's it's turtle doves because days. it's a Christmas movie. Ah, yeah. Good old John Woo, man. I love that slow-mo action. What else do we have here from Angel Studios? Upstart Angel Studios. It is really punching above its weight at the box office. We've got The Shift, which we expect to open between 3 and $7 million, and another 6 to $21 million domestic run. I haven't really heard too much about The Shift, but then again, I hadn't really heard too much about Sound of Freedom until we all did. So what's the inside story here from The Shift? It's really actually interesting. They showed the trailer for it at the Geneva Convention this year. It's uh, kind of a dystopian guy ends up in a parallel universe. It's all post-apocalyptic and awful, and he's trying to get back to the universe he comes from to reconnect with his wife. Of what we've seen so far from Angel Studios, we've had, obviously, The Sound of Freedom, which is kind of a based on a true story drama. There's been, I think, Cabrini, which is a historical drama. The documentary they put out about near-death experiences and the afterlife after that. And that, I think, that cracked the top five on its opening weekend. So we're not seeing uh, Angel Studios really have any, any of those blockbuster numbers for any of their films, nor did anybody expect them to. I think their theatrical division is one person and they by no means have the resources of a of a major studio, but they are finding success operating across a very wide variety of genres, which I find interesting. Like a documentary, a post-apocalypse, a sound of freedom, and this like all in one year. 
and talking about distributors with small teams but big releases. AMC teaming up with Variants once again for the release of the second big concert film of the year. Renaissance from Beyonce, which we expect to open between $27 and $36 million this weekend. Big, big, big theatrical range here. We don't know where it's going to fall. It's a little bit awkward with a concert title like this one. Anywhere between 40 and $80 million at the box office. Let's not make this a competition with Taylor Swift. We're not getting into that toxic Twitter space. Two very different films at two very different points in the schedule with two very different marketing campaigns. Yes, same concept. Yes, same distributor. But hey, $40, $20 million that would not have been at the box office. Thanks to AMC coming in, partnering directly with an artist to bring another highly anticipated concert film to theaters. For me, this is a plus. I'm looking forward to seeing how high yeah, this absolutely. And I think it's especially needed considering the films or rather maybe the lack of films that we have coming out throughout the rest of the holiday corridor. Uh, you know, we don't have a ton. There's Aquaman and the Lost Kingdom. There's Wonka. I'm curious to see how Wonka will do. I mean, we had another kind of musical legacy prequel, sequel, reboot type of situation a few years back with uh, with Mary Poppins Returns. Didn't do too well. Granted, that was Disney and this that. is Warner Brothers, but yeah, out. it didn't. Yeah. yeah, but I like, yeah, who knows if... Is anyone asking for these movies? I'm like genuinely, like I am extremely perplexed on the titles that are coming out as and where was the demand for this yeah let's see if that connects my big question is who's gonna stick around to watch aquaman and the last dregs of the dceu i kind of want to I'm, I'm, I'm i might be seeing that one i'm gonna i'm gonna be honest with you it looks like stupid fun and it's i would love for that to happen i'm definitely i'm there for it I am betting to be pleasantly surprised by the result of that movie. Before we go to the last opening film opening this weekend, I have to ask you guys, both of you, the movie that you're most looking forward to for the end of the year, because we've been a little cynical. I know we, we didn't used to be this bitter. This is what like three years of like a post-pandemic recovery does to you covering theatrical exhibition. But we do have to keep it real sometimes. Yes, there are warning signs for December. We don't have an Avatar. We don't have a Spider-Man. But there are movies, I think, that are quite interesting. What's on the top of your must-watch list between here and the end of the year? Chad, let's start with you. Yeah, I think for me, I'm seeing a press screening of the Iron Claw next week. I'm really looking forward yeah, to that seeing looks good. that for May 24. It's interesting because it's it's in that same kind of niche of this is based on a true story, but it's a very like niche true story. In this case, it's something that I think any like wrestling nerd, if you said, you know, if you showed them this movie, they'd be like, oh, of course, those guys. But maybe outside of that specific world, it's not as well known. We've seen, I mean, a movie like that was, uh, for example, Dumb Money from Sony, which, which didn't do that well. That said, you know, A24, they know how to market and to roll out these less mainstream titles, let's say. Totally understandable. I know one movie that you're watching this weekend might be the answer to that, Rebecca, on your end. Godzilla Minus One from Toho International. That's it. That's it. So I have not seen the any of the Toho Godzillas. In fact, the only Godzilla I've ever seen is the was it Emmerich? Oh, no. In 1998 no. with Matthew Broderick. Oh, that's the only one you've you seen? seen? I know. That's a disservice to Godzilla. And I apologize <laughs> to Mr. Zilla. But no, I, I haven't seen anything beyond that. In its defense, the Jamiroquai tie-in music video, Deeper Underground, was actually kind of cool. 
or at least what I consider. Oh, Jamiroquai, come on. That's probably like the best thing I can say about that 1998 uh, Godzilla. How would you sell Godzilla minus one to me? Because I like my monster movies, by the way. I mean, I would sell it as recently over the last few years. I mean, we've seen Warner Brothers reboot the MonsterVerse. Now they have their Monarch TV series with, with Kurt Russell, all that. Still the best Godzilla movie to have come out in the last 10 years, I think, is Shin Godzilla, which was released, I think, domestically by Fathom Events. It was a limited release. It did very well, given you know how big of a release it got. Certainly, I imagine that contributes to why Godzilla Minus One is getting a bigger release, I think, than Shin Godzilla did. But that was the only one, I think, for all Godzilla movies, you know, across all the ones I've seen anyway, which is, you know, a bazillion Godzilla movies, yeah, across different monsters and all that. It's difficult to crack. The human characters are boring. No one's there for the human characters, but you have to have them in order to have like a plot to hang the movie together. I think that the recent Warner Brothers movies, for the most part, have been like, I don't care about Aaron Tarantulachin. I don't in that first one or like Brian Cran. I just don't care. Shin Godzilla was the one that managed to do a nice balance of uh, of human characters and, and monster action without feeling too self-important or kind of too cartoonishly right. ridiculous. Well, using that formula, Bong Joon-ho's The Host is probably the perfect example of how do you get that formula right. I actually also think the first Cloverfield gets the formula right. You care for the characters. There's a simple objective, get from point A to point B. And then there's also a monster. Yeah, that does sound like an interesting movie. For me, Michael Mann... Adam Driver, Christmas time. The last time I saw Adam Driver playing an Italian national in a 20th century period piece, he was awesome in it. Obviously, that's that's the second House of Gucci reference in half an hour that we've made at this podcast. <laughs> but I am a Michael Mann apologist. Even his bad movies, I will defend. I haven't heard too much about uh, Ferrari. Obviously, I, 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 I was scene. not. I'm not connected. I, didn't, I wasn't I used pumped to, to see for. I didn't. I didn't. I wasn't pumped to see for. I didn't care at all, really, about Ferrari. I'm not. I'm not. You're in tune with the racing world, and, and you're more interested in that than I am. But I gotta tell you, I remember the trailer made me like sit up and think, "Oh my god!" Like this, I'll just see it for the racing scenes. I don't need to see people like talk or act. You know, I'll just go for the action. So yeah, that's that's one that I'm excited for as well. I can't wait to see it. And our colleague Michael O'Leary, the head of the National Association of Theater Owners, big Ferrari fan in the Formula One world. I don't know. Maybe we have to write out to our friends to Neon to tell them, "Hey, come on, let's get a let's get a nice swag gift over there to the NATO offices in DC." Though I have to say, also, Daniel, we have an interview that you did back in before your paternity leave with the cinematographer of the film "Poor Things" coming out uh, from Searchlight, December eighth. That's another one that I've heard extremely good things about. It's ones that I'm very excited for. It bonkers. is bonkers. Yeah, yeah, I mean, just yeah. You want to see, like, divisive with capital letters, which is a good thing. I don't know how you feel about it, Chad. Poor Things is the most anti-audience film I've seen Searchlight <laughs> yeah. ever put out. It's also one of the most sexually graphic films I've seen put out by a Disney-adjacent company ever. I'm surprised they kept it. For that alone, I give them immense credit. I love Yorgos Lantimos. I enjoyed I the film. It's not an easy film. People will not like it. There will be walkouts. And if you go into that movie understanding that, you will have a good time. Yeah, I agree. 
And yeah, if you're intrigued by that, definitely tune back in next Thursday because we do have an interview with Frank Rodriguez of Searchlight, who I definitely want to go back and reread that interview after having seen Poor Things because he was just like, you've seen, you're have you going to see him a song like you've never seen him before. It's so it's like he really sold me on the weirdness of it. So I'm excited for that one as well. I did use the term sexually graphic, and I'm sure some viewers were like, oh, that sounds interesting. What I didn't use was the term surgical gore, which there is probably as much surgical (laughs) gore as there is explicit sex. So, you know, take that for what it's worth for the you big fans of surgical gore and sex scenes. Do we have the perfect (laughs) Christmas movie for you? (laughs) Directed by Yorgos Lantimos. I can't wait to hear the discourse around that movie. All of that coming out in the coming weeks. Rebecca, Chad, thank you so much once again for joining me. In this case, me joining you guys. I haven't been on in a while. And the Box Office Podcast will be back once again next week. As we said, with a special guest, Searchlight Pictures, Frank Rodriguez. That's coming out next Thursday. Thanks again for tuning in. The Box Office Podcast is produced by Box Office Pro in collaboration with the Box Office Company and Record Edit Podcast. New episodes out every Thursday. Don't forget to subscribe. And if you work in the cinema industry, advertise. It's a really good way to get your message to the movie theater owners that have been reading us for over a century. Thanks again for your support. We'll talk to you again soon.